Hi, everyone, and welcome to the fourth episode of the ACG's Brains and Guts podcast, uh, the how-to guide for innovators in GI. Uh, today's episode is going to be away from medicine, uh, but very pertinent to any innovator, and that's because we're going to talk about patents and everything that you wanted to know but were afraid to ask uh, about the 101 of uh, patenting for innovators. So I'm going to turn off to my co-host, uh, Dr. Tofa Kachami, uh, who will introduce our guest for the weekday. And uh, today we are joined by Robert Takara. Uh, Robert has a background as a patent attorney with over 10 years of experience in technology transfer, uh, a field that manages the intellectual property of innovations developed at the institution for the commercialization process uh, and working with industry partners. Uh, Robert is currently a technology licensing manager at the Office of Technology Licensing at City of Hope, and he previously held positions at UC Santa Barbara and before that at UC San Diego, where he managed their patent prosecution and intellectual property licensing activities. Uh, Robert holds a JD uh, from uh, Michigan State and a BS in human biology, which is a perfect combination to work with uh, physicians. Uh, he is a member of the California State Bar and is registered to practice before uh, the U.S. States, uh, the United States uh, Patent and Trademark Office. Thank you very much for joining us, Robert, and for sharing your uh, expertise. Uh, thank you, Tofik. Thank you, Vlad. And thank you, everyone, for inviting me here. Uh, it's an honor and a privilege. Thank you. Uh, so uh, my first question to you is, uh, can you give us some basic information about patents? Absolutely. So... A patent is one of the multiple types of intellectual property, uh, different from copyright, trademark, or trade secret. Uh, that is an intangible, intangible right granted by the government in the form of a legal document, uh, and it allows the patent holder to legally exclude others from making, using, offering for sale, selling, importing into the U.S. the invention claim. Uh, to obtain a patent, um, an inventor must file a patent application, and in doing so, must meet several patentability requirements before the patent office allows uh, what we'll discuss later, uh, what we call claims of the patent to issue. There are three types of patents. Uh, they are utility patents, design patents, and plant patents. Um, the body of the, the patent has a section called the specification, which describes the invention, and another section called the claim, which will articulate your claim to invention that provides the meets, meets and bounds of your invention. If you can imagine that, that uh, you will enforce against others. Um, by far, the most common applications are for utility patents. And um, I imagine that's most pertinent to our audience of innovators on the podcast today. Okay, thank you, Robert, for that. So you mentioned the utility and design patent. Yeah. Uh, can you give us a, a brief... Uh... Uh, you know, uh, introduction of what is the design and the utility and how these are different, and especially sure. as it relates to uh, a device. Sure. So both uh, design patents and utility patents, in order for the claim to be allowed, uh, they must undergo an examination process before the USPTO. Um, however, some differences, um, a design patent can cover only the ornamental or non-functional aspects of something. In contrast, a utility patent, uh, that will cover the functionality and the inventions which, um, are, are, which are the innovations that we think of. So by statute, what's covered are uh, that which are new and useful inventions related to processes, machines, 
articles of manufacture and uh, compositions of matter or any improvements thereof. Uh, when we speak of processes, we need methods. When we when we speak of machines, we we are we are referring to devices. Um, articles of manufacturers are products, and of course, compositions of matters are uh, chemical compounds. Um, while this is outside uh, beyond the scope of our discussion today, there are some uh, judicially created exceptions which are not patent eligible. And just know that they are abstract ideas, natural phenomenon, and products of nature. Uh, an abstract idea would be, let's say, a mathematical formula. A natural phenomenon would be, let's say, a, um, a law of gravity. And a product of nature would be, a, let's say, a, a metabolite that's uh, developed by an organism naturally. Um, another difference would be also um, a design patent. Um, its term is 15 years after issue. And it, uh, while a, a utility patent, um, its term lasts uh, 20 years from uh, the date of its filing. And those are some differences. Okay. And, uh, you know, often I hear novel and obvious mentioned when we talk about patents. Would you uh, explain to us, like, what are the concepts of novel and obvious? Novelty and non-obviousness are, among others, uh, two of the biggest patentability requirements. Um, novelty requires that uh, no prior art have anticipated the filing date of your invention. Uh, prior art. Um, is any patent, patent application, publication, or any public disclosure that can be used against you to defeat novelty. Uh, this even includes the inventor's own disclosure of his or her own uh, invention. Um, an inventor, nonetheless, may still be entitled to patent rights in the U.S. if filing within one year of his or her disclosure of the invention, but just keep in mind that rights internationally may be lost. Non-obviousness requires that while no prior art standing alone have anticipated the invention that you've filed on, the differences nonetheless between your claimed invention and the prior art taken as a whole uh, would not have been, before your filing date, obvious to a person having ordinary skill in the art. When we speak of the person having the ordinary skill in the art, this is a legal standard by which the examiner measures um, whether features of different pieces of art could have been combined to result in your invention. So if you could just imagine in practice, an examiner might find different features of your claimed invention from multiple references, and then allege that it would have been obvious for the person having the ordinary skill in your art to have combined them to arrive at your invention. It's as frustrating as it sounds uh, due to its subjectiveness, and you can never know it's an issue until you've commenced examination. And a research publication would be prior art. That's right. Either uh, published by someone else or, like I discussed uh, just now, um, your own. Discovering an invention of your own, so long as you file within one year. What is a provisional patent? That's a fantastic question. Um, well, I should point out that there is no such thing as a provisional patent. What, what there is, when people speak of provisionals, are um, a provisional application for patent. Okay, and this is a special type of patent application that an applicant can file in the U.S., which itself is never examined and will never issue into a patent. So why are they so important? Well, the purpose of a provisional is to secure a filing date for an invention, which in turn serves many purposes. A filing date 
filing date of a provisional serves as, uh, for example, a priority date against competitors that may have otherwise filed before you. Um, it's a way to retain novelty, just, we just discussed, before an inventor's public disclosure or the publication of any prior art. A filing date also gives an applicant the ability to secure that filing date, but then still have more time to determine whether filing a non-provisional application, which does undergo examination, is more costly, is economically worthwhile. The filing date also, of course, gives the inventor uh, an ability to secure a filing date, but still provide additional time to further develop the, uh, uh, the various technical aspects of the invention, possibly leading to a better quality uh, non-provisional application uh, later on. So, so how long do you have after you file a non-provisional patent? Uh, it's, yeah. it's a great question. It's a great question. Because as we discussed, um, they are never examined, they'll never issue into a patent. A provisional application lasts for one year. And at the end of that one year, um, an applicant can choose to file a non-provisional application, which subsequently undergoes the examination process. Um, an applicant can refile the provisional, assuming no prior art has surfaced in the past year. Or, of course, um, you can choose to allow the provisional to expire because, um, for reasons, you have uh, no desire to further pursue it. So how detailed does the uh, provisional application have to be? You you want the provisional application to be sufficiently detailed in the technical aspects of your invention. Uh, you you want it you want your provisional to thoroughly describe the invention and it should include a few figures which are drawings if it is a device. Uh, to give you an idea, at an academic institution where traditional lab science research is performed. Uh, most commonly, a provisional is filed at the time a journal-ready manuscript has been prepared where, where that paper forms the basis on which a provisional is prepared. Now, if you do file a non-provisional application at the end of the provisional's life, in order to benefit from the priority date of the provisional filing date, you will want to ensure that the subject matter is supported by the specification of the provisional. So ideally, you want the support to be robust enough that the patentability requirements of written description and enablement are, are met. Um, and briefly, written description and enablement, uh, these are requirements that speak to um, requiring a patent application specification that must contain a written description of the invention sufficiently and clearly as to enable the person having ordinary skill in the art to make or use the invention as claimed. So you can imagine. An invention in a non-provisional, let's say, that was not discussed in the provisional would not be supported and would not benefit from the filing date of the provisional. Since inventors typically continue to work on their inventions, there is often a, a balancing act uh, between needing to secure that filing date uh, with, with the provisional, uh, but wanting to wait um, until a fleshed out invention has been developed that you wish to secure patenting on Monday. That's great. So uh, this leads us to our next question. So when should someone retain a patent attorney uh, in that process? A great question. Um, I, I should start by saying for those uh, in the audience uh, work for institutions, you may want to be careful to check with your organization to determine whether uh, you have an obligation to disclose any inventions to your employer, uh, particularly if uh, something was developed 
in the scope of your employment or with your employer's resources or facilities. Um, actually there, in fact, your institution may have intellectual property management or a technology transfer program that can actually guide you through the early stages of the process. But outside of that, outside of that, an inventor may want to begin uh, to consider consulting with a patent attorney after he or she has performed a, a basic search of the market and patent landscape, um, has taken steps to develop the invention and strongly now believe he or she has a novel invention that is uh, commercially viable, which would benefit from the preparation of a patent application. Of course, if you cannot afford a patent attorney quite yet, uh, many entrepreneurs uh, file provisionals on their own. Uh, but in my opinion, you will you will want to consult a patent attorney by the time you are ready to file a provisional, and a, pat and a patent attorney becomes uh, necessary when pursuing a non-provisional application, since the patent attorney will know how to prepare the application to meet the legal formalities for filing. Um, in other words, um, meeting certain certain ways in which the document itself must be organized and how the figures that drive must be prepared. And your patent attorney, of course, will be well-versed in the technical area and the patent laws to navigate the examination process where the examiner may cite countless statutes and case law as a legal basis for rejecting your patent claim. And, and so you mentioned search uh, database to see if uh, look for patents. What is your go-to database to search? Yes, uh, for, for beginners and advanced folks alike, uh, a good place to start would be uh, Google Patents, which has a very easy, approachable user interface um, where you can find patents and patent applications filed in many countries worldwide. Uh, for our U.S. inventors, uh, who will obviously look to prioritize the U.S. market, uh, I would recommend searching the actual USPTO searchable database. And finally, uh, to get a good feel for the international filings that exist, I, I can also recommend the searchable database, uh, um, WIPO, the World Intellectual Property Organiz Organization database called PatScope. Well, perfect. And uh, the next question I have is, when you file a uh, non-provisional application, how typically does, does it take to hear back from the patent office? The process from filing an application to receiving an issued patent can take a few years, um, quite frankly. Uh, once, once a non-provisional application is filed at the USPTO, depending on the backlog in your technical area, uh, you can expect to wait a couple years until an examiner is assigned to your application. And then possibly another three years it may take or more for the examination itself. Examination is a dance uh, between the applicant and the examiner the negotiation where the applicant wants claims broad enough to cover the invention, but the USPTO wants to ensure that your claims don't read on the priority. And this is a process that can take a few rounds of back and forth. I love how you call it a dance. Uh, it makes it sound a lot more enjoyable, I think, than, than reality. Uh, then, uh, you know, uh, what is the Patent Cooperation Treaty, or PCT? That's something that people, I think, should be familiar with. Yeah. This is a fantastic option for um, those that have the international markets in mind and whose invention um, still retains novelty internationally. Uh, the PCT is an international treaty with over 150 participating member countries. Um, the PCT allows an applicant 
as a resident of a PCT member country who has filed a patent application locally to then file a PCT application within 12 months to secure a placeholder for international rights until the applicant must then decide in which other specific PCT member country uh, he or she wishes to pursue patent rights. Uh, an applicant can enter nationally in any other PCT yeah. member country thereafter um, by that particular country's uh, national stage deadline. Uh, that deadline is different for different countries, but most commonly uh, you will enter nationally within 30 or 31 months from the date of priority. The deadline for entering the U.S. Um, 30 months from priority. So in practice, a U.S. applicant having international rights with respect to novelty would file a provisional in the U.S. and within 12 months file a PCT application and then within 18 months file a U.S. national state application while having had an opportunity to decide during that whole time which other foreign country market the international stage in. And that's the benefit of filing in the PCT. Robert, and one follow-up question to yeah. uh, one question ago. Sure. Um, kind of, while you're waiting on the patent office, which as you mentioned can take years, kind of what are, what can you do? So obviously, you know, the world doesn't stop and you don't stop working on your invention uh, in that time. Uh, but how do you kind of balance, you know, the potential risk of not being granted a patent or being granted very narrow patent rights versus the cost and time? Right. So assuming that um, you as an applicant did not opt for the um, um, uh, what when our accelerated examination uh, avenues where you can file with a special uh, specialized status to accelerate the examination process and get a, uh, a determination uh, within one year, assuming you did not categorize at the time of filing your application to be so. Um, during that time where you are waiting in line in queue for examination and undergoing the examination process, which takes years, um, I would recommend you take this wonderful opportunity to test the market. Um, to test the uh, business, um, the interest, um, the partners that you may uh, ultimately work with and bringing your product to the public public's benefit. So this is a fantastic time uh, to develop your product internally while addressing the, the market interest at the same time. And in fact, you may have a better understanding uh, by the time your uh, patent application is examined, whether you actually wanted to pursue it uh, at that time. Okay, and one other fairly basic question. Uh, what's the best way to find a patent attorney? Um, you know, kind of, we, we as physicians are in the role that our patients are in in many ways because we're kind of, uh, you know, looking for professional, we're looking for professional assistance where we may not have a large network in the field. Yeah, the best way to find a competent uh, patent attorney in your technical subject matter area is to definitely ask around. And even when you were, uh, uh, fortunate to find a list of uh, potential candidates to move forward with. Uh, you will want to thoroughly interview each um, to see if it's a good fit with the, the technical area of your patent, um, patentable invention. Um, and then one last question with regard to kind of picking an attorney and working with an attorney. Uh, if you are a employed by a university or other entity with an office of technology transfer, how do you protect yourself as an individual while also working within the bounds of the institution and your employment agreement? 
Right. So the answer uh, will always be found in your employment agreement with your employer. And some are um, uh, very specific as to those that um, uh, inventions that are developed um, in the course of your employment, um, absolutely, or those that will require the use of the uh, um, institution's facilities or resources, you always want to check. Uh, but to better be safe than sorry, you may want to disclose the invention uh, to your institution uh, to make a determination of um, um, whether the rights um, are yours or not. Uh, before I ask you our final two questions that we ask every uh, guest, uh, can you explain to the audience what's the freedom to operate? Right. So in contrast to patentability, uh, which we've been discussing up until now, uh, which speaks to an applicant's uh, ability to procure a patent in view of the existing art, um, freedom to operate, in contrast, refers to uh, one's ability to practice an invention in view of the pending or issued patents that exist. So said differently, freedom to operate is your ability to develop and sell your products or services without infringing the patent rights of someone else. Okay, so while this may be years away in your mind as you continue to stealthily develop your invention, um, it is advisable to have a freedom to operate study performed at some point sooner, than, sooner rather than later as you uh, possibly form a business enterprise uh, around your innovation and, of course, well in advance of any commercial sale. So, in other words, is it kind of doing your own, basically doing your own examination and kind of seeing what the feasibility of you being granted a patent is, um, or is it different than that? So, so your ability to procure a patent uh, um, was up until now, where you assess uh, your own inventions, uh, uh, ability to to meet the novel the novelty and non-obviousness requirements um, before the USPTO. Uh, in contrast, what's going on here is now you're looking at your product, the product itself, and determining whether your product now reads on the existing claims of uh, pending patent applications and issued patents that already exist. So this is we're talking about a, a different game entirely. So basically, it is if your product uh, imprint, uh, uh, is using someone else's patent, and so uh, securing freedom to operate requires your product that not to be using someone else's patent, whether design or utility. Correct. That's right. Okay. That's right. Uh, now, uh, what is a common mistake in your opinion that an innovator does when starting? Uh, this uh, journey as it relates to patents? Yeah, there are a few I can think of, but a common mistake, uh, which may be helpful to the audience, um, it might be underestimating um, the amount of preparatory work that goes into the patenting process uh, beyond the filing of the provisional or even the non-provisional, uh, and thus the legal costs that result from it and uh, not adequately accounting for them into the overall business expenditure. Uh, you will regularly hear uh, from solo inventors, startups, about how daunting the invoices for patent costs can feel uh, when they first become familiarized with them. Um, appreciating the tremendous amount of work that will be required, and in parallel, of course, being aware of the legal costs associated uh, 
with it uh, will inevitably that will inevitably occur. Uh, will uh, help you better budget uh, your business expenditures and uh, alleviate, uh, if nothing else, the the shock, the sticker shock you may get otherwise. And a follow up question to that is: What is your number one advice to give to an innovator regarding patent filing? Uh, the advice I would give to any um, aspiring innovator um, about patents, uh, generally, I would I would say. Uh, for the work that is required before filing any patent application or any patent-related document, um, do much of it, do as much of it yourself uh, if you are in a position to do so. Uh, for example, um, once you've identified a challenge for which you wish to develop a solution, uh, the more time you dedicate to searching the, the product and patent landscape uh, related to your invention, um, the, the more you will not only likely develop an invention to address that challenge better, but also be able to describe the invention in your patent application and the claim strategically over the existing art. Um, and if, if and when you work with a patent attorney, um, you, you aren't able to provide your patent attorney with writing a bulk of the patent application specification uh, that covers your invention and all its various embodiments. Uh, you can provide your patent attorney with copies of any relevant art and prepare uh, thorough explanations of how your invention is novel over the existing art. Um, these are all fantastic ways to drastically reduce the overall cost of the process. Um, it's important to know that you, as an inventor, will be more intimately familiar with your invention than any examiner or even your patent attorney will ever be. Yeah. This is fantastic, Albert. Thank you very much for making this very technical and heavy topic, uh, you know, uh, more digestible. Uh, Vlad? Uh... No, thank you, Robert. Robert, this was great. Uh, I certainly learned a lot more about patents than I knew at the, at the start of the half hour. I uh, really appreciate your time. Um, and we will uh, see everyone on the next episode of the Brains and Guts podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Brains and Guts, the GI Innovation Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please subscribe and drop us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also send us questions and ideas for future episodes to brainsandguts at gi.org. We look forward to talking to you soon.